Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of our podcast and radio show know, each and every week, a guest and I discuss the weekly parasha, the weekly section of the Torah, one of the five books of Moses. And we identify a selection from the parasha, which can, as in this week's case, be up to three chapters. This week's parasha is known as Mishpatim, and perhaps our guest this morning will begin by trying to identify uh, what Mishpatim means. But let me give an overview of the parasha. It is beginning in Exodus 21, and concluding in Exodus 24, verse 18. Following the revelation at Sinai, the Aserita de Brot, known in English as the Ten Commandments, God offers a series of laws for the people of Israel. These include laws of the indentured servant, the penalties for murder, kidnapping, assault, theft, civil laws pertaining to redress of damages, the granting of loans, and the responsibility of what's called in the text the four guardians, and the rules governing conduct of justice by courts of law. In addition, there are a number of uh, laws related to sexual behavior and value laws. In a In addition, there are laws warning against mistreatment of foreigners, the observance of seasonal festivals, the agricultural gifts that are to be brought to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, an introduction to the notion of kashrut with the prohibition of cooking meat with milk. Altogether, Jewish tradition uh, counts 53 mitzvot, 23 imperative commandments, and 30 prohibitions. God promises in this week's parasha to bring the people of Israel to the Holy Land and warns them against assuming the pagan ways of the current inhabitants. The parasha concludes by the people of Israel proclaiming, We will do and we will hear all that God commands us, leaving Aaron and Hur in charge in the Israelite camp, Moses ascends Mount Sinai and remains there for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the Torah from God. As you can see, this is a Torah portion uh, filled with fascinating uh, components of Jewish tradition and Jewish law. With me this morning to converse about Parashah Mishpatim is Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg, who is the rabbi of Temple Israel in Ottawa. Rabbi Michaelberg is Canadian, grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, 
and has been active in the reform Jewish movement, one of the liberal perspectives of Judaism. He was ordained in May of 2008 from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. His rabbinic path took him back to his home city of Vancouver as assistant rabbi at Temple Shalom. And in 2011, he became associate rabbi of Temple Sinai Congregation of Toronto. He is, since 2019, rabbi, senior rabbi of Temple Israel of Ottawa. There is so much that can be said about Rabbi Michael Berg. Um, he has volunteered on service projects in El Salvador, Cuba, and Ghana. And he is married to Zachary Paul, and they have a young son named Jacob. It's with great joy that I uh, welcome Rabbi Michael Berg to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Garda. It's my third time here. So three, uh, three times a charm, right? Uh, um, well, I have no doubt that each and every time our listeners have learned a great deal from you and have insights into the Torah portion. So as I indicated in our my introduction, this week's Torah portion is called Mishpatim, and I'm wondering how you learn to translate those words. So as I think about Mishpatim, um, I, I think about the term laws. Uh, but these aren't just exactly laws like we're used to in civil society, because very much these mishpatim also include moral imperatives, um, social standards, civil and criminal injunctions, um, as well as rules for worship. And as I understand the terms mishpatim, I really understand them as the expectations that we hold as we think about another Hebrew term being brit. Uh, meaning covenant, uh, really reminding ourselves that when we are in covenant with one another, with God, with our world, there are a host of different expectations that are placed on both parties. And as we think about mishpatim, as we think about laws, it very much tackles these um, these topics of what is expected me to the other um, as I hold myself uh, to the best of my abilities in partnership. Well, um, I know that you've introduced the concept of uh, covenant here as a, an essential aspect of the Torah portion. Um, when I had asked the original question about um, the word mishpatim, um, I was reminded of my professor of biblical studies, Hanan Brikto Alavashalom, who thought that we should understand the term as social norms rather than focus on the word law. And I would suppose that social norms are very much a part of the notion of covenant that we all commit ourselves to certain uh, behaviors and certain expectations as part of a community. Of course, covenant in the Torah is more than just uh, one kind of a community. It's a special community. 
Um, and in this week's Torah portion, we find the Israelites um, saying these uh, famous words, Na'asev uh, we will do um, and we will nishma. And so perhaps we can use those terms to uh, expand on the notion of covenant. How do you define na'asev and nishma? If I would, uh, um, if I think about na'asev, meaning that we will follow, we will do, and nishma, meaning also that we will integrate, that we will, that we will hear these words, that we will faithfully um, follow. Uh, the story, I also have a story that I associate with these words. I remember in my early years as a rabbi um, talking about this parasha and having a student respond to me, wow, it's amazing to think about all the Israelites speaking in the same words, all united together, nasev and nishma, it's like they were possessed. It's funny those memories that really um, stand out, and of Absolutely. course, it's a unique thing to uh, for all these uh, all these people to be able to speak um, in one voice um, in this way, and it speaks to their power. It speaks to the um, incredible experience of taking on these expectations of uh, of ingraining these um, these principles in the confines of um, of covenant. And just to elaborate on that, just for a moment. The Hebrew word for covenant being Brit, it's really something quite special, that something quite um, extraordinary. That on the one hand, we could call a covenant a contract of sorts that simply implies reciprocal responsibilities. But unlike most covenants or contracts, there's no transfer of funds. Rather, this Brit, this covenant is based on trust, on love, and it's intended to be permanent. The two main examples of covenant um, are between spouses and between God and the Jewish people. And it's as we think about this notion of covenant, this notion of sacred bond, that these words become all the more powerful, nasev and nishma, God, whatever you articulate, I will, uh, I will faithfully um, abide by. What a remarkable thing for the Israelites to take that leap of faith in this remarkable way to commit themselves to these practices. You know, as you were speaking about the power of this phrase, na'aseh v'nishma, I'm reminded that uh, one of the essential prayers in the Jewish liturgy is known as the Shema. Uh, in earlier uh, prayer books of the Reform Movement, the prayer was often introduced with the words, we recite the watchword of our faith. And it strikes me uh, to ask, is the usage of the word Shema in the liturgy um, two times out of the three prescribed services, similar to its usage in this week's Torah portion? Do they both speak about Brit, or is there something that distinguishes the usage? Wow. Well, as I think about this story, and as I think about the Shema, um, the central element is, is listening. It's remaining open to 
making sure that we acknowledge uh, God's presence, the blessing before us, and also an appreciation that what we do matters. Um, very much as we listen in the Shema and very much as we now juxtapose the Israelite experience, we're able to reflect that what we believe and what we do um, are very much tied together in precious ways. Um, and it's as we nurture our faith that we're, um, that we're able to really reflect on how do we bring about holiness in the world. Um, what an interesting transition. So when you say bring about holiness... Um, there is, of course, a Torah portion known as the Holiness Code. Are you suggesting that there's a connection between that section of Leviticus 18 and 19, known as the Holiness Code, and this section of Mishpatim, that both of them seem to be um, litanies of law, but their intention seems to be much different? Absolutely. I would say the uh, as we think about the Holiness Code, as we think about this parasha, Mishpatim, uh, as we think about these principles, um, they're intended to lift up. We lift up ourselves. We lift up everybody around us. Um, we lift up the potential in our world, which is not to say that's easy. Uh, what comes to mind to me is the Talmudic legend that, uh, that talks about how the angels were so impressed by the faith that the uh, Israelites showed that they came down from heaven and they placed two crowns on the head of each Israelite, one for doing and one for um, obeying. After all, it would have been more likely for the Israelites to respond, we will seek to understand and if we are persuaded, we will agree. But instead, the Israelites display complete trust in God. And so I, I share the story to really illustrate that how beautiful it is, how remarkable it is for the Israelites to recognize that by following these practices, um, there is amazing potential before their eyes. And sometimes we, we need to just do before we understand. That's how amazing the Israelites were, that they were able to um, abide by these practices, even though, as we can imagine, they were probably confused and overwhelmed. Your explanation of the um, beautiful phrase, Na'asev Nishma, seems to reflect um, the traditional understanding that one finds great meaning in doing. Um, and we're going to leave that to their understanding of religious behavior that only through constant doing does one find um, meaning, discover meaning, unwrap and unveil meaning. But the movement that your synagogue is associated with and that both of us are associated with used um, this phrase in a very different way. They uh, preached for uh, nearly a century that doing came from understanding. Um, so do you think that the movement that your synagogue represents still holds to that original notion that doing emerges out of understanding, or is it morphed to a more, what I'll call traditional 
understanding of it? Well, that is a fascinating question, Rabbi. Um, as I look to the early reformers, and when I say the early reformers, I, I mean we're looking back about 150 years ago. These would have been um, German pioneers arriving in the Midwest, um, embarking on a new pathway. What does it mean to be Jewish? In their case, in the in, in the uh, in the 20th century, <clears throat> and for them very much leaving behind their um, their ritual practices for which they couldn't see meaning was a priority for them. That very much the original reformers distanced themselves from practices, whether they have to do with clothing um, or eating um, or a host of ritual, no longer seeing um, meaning in them and therefore discarding them. But one of the things I love about the reform movement is that we're not linear and that we tend to go back and forth and back and forth, and our understanding evolves with time. And it's been remarkable to note our re-embrace of tradition, even those traditions for which we might struggle with and which might um, might confuse us. Um, you know, for example, uh, dietary practices. You know, I'll share that I, uh, that I do keep kosher, but that it's perhaps one of the things that I struggle with uh, that I struggle with most in my Judaism is I actually don't have a really good reason why. Um, rather, I see these dietary practices as a means of opening my eyes and recognizing the food on my plate and acknowledging God's place in a host of uh, blessing, which is not to say I don't struggle with it, but I, I share this as an example of um, a host of areas where the original reformers would have become more distant from. And now, whether it's some congregation or there's some individuals are, are, are looking to re-embrace, recognizing even in those uh, practices that, um, that we struggle with, that we don't see the exact reasoning for, um, they can still elevate the soul and, um, and elevate our peoplehood in precious ways. So, um, as you were speaking, I was reminded of um, a great Canadian rabbi, Rabbi Gunther Plout, who served at Holy Blossom Temple. So he wrote the Torah. Right. (laughs) Many, many people believe that. For our listeners, Rabbi Plout wrote an English commentary to the five books of Moses, to the Torah, and his was the first... English commentary written in nearly a half century. There had been an earlier commentary written in the early part of the 20th century, and Rabbi Plout's commentary in English was published in the late 1970s. Um, But he wrote a little-known volume called the Shabbat Manual, and in that manual, he tried to wrestle with what it meant to affirm uh, ritual behaviors, um, acknowledging, as you did, that uh, throughout um, the history of the liberal Jewish movement, there were uh, individuals who uh, practiced um, ritual because it was traditional, um, some who practiced it because they affirmed that it was a commandment from God, and some who waited until lightning struck 
um, to uh, give them insight as to why they um, practice these ritual. And in your description of it, I'm reminded that he said that um, the performance of these rituals, which he felt comfortable calling mitzvot, were connectors. They could be connectors to the Jewish people. They could be connectors to the transcendent God. Um, and they could even just be connectors to uh, families. So in your uh, observance of tradition, as you explained to our listeners of Kashrut, which you're not necessarily sure why you maintain this tradition, is it possible that you uh, unconsciously simply see it as a connector? Wow. So it, it's a beautiful thing to notice that which we share, and, and often that is represented in behavior. And so certainly, what, what a great example to think about our, our, our behavior, in this case, eating practices or and a host of other areas, as being something that ties us together. I'm thinking pre-pandemic and days where I used to travel and how lovely it often is to be in a far-off land and to find oneself amongst Jewish people and to recognize that we're all lighting candles on Friday night and to recognize that even though we might speak different languages, even though we might live in different quarters of the world, that there's so much that, uh, that brings us together. And perhaps that's the beauty of this experience, tying it back to Naseb and Nishma, and that it's an experience that the Israelites would have shared together. We often talk about how um, all Jewish people stood at the foot of Sinai, past and present, born Jewish, chosen Jewish, but we all had this formative experience of receiving Torah, of hearing God's words. Not to say it was necessarily a pleasant experience. I was teaching last week and our my Torah study group really defined this as a scary experience as much as it was awe-inducing. But how beautiful to really witness that all together we were, um, we were witness to, uh, to God's presence, to the potential role that we can play in the world. And even as we struggle, it's something shared that we can continue forward and carry with us and help us on our journey forward. And are you able to communicate that to a newer generation of um, Jews who don't have the historical perspective that you have, both because of your learning and because you have grown up in um, the liberal Jewish tradition? Um, another very interesting question, Rabbi Garden. Um, as I think about working with Jews by choice, which is the, the term that we use for people who choose Judaism, for people who, um, who choose to convert to Judaism, it can be very difficult to, um, to conceive of, of adopting not just ritual practices, but adopting a narrative and recognizing that joining a people means also joining one's history. And so it's a very complicated thing to, uh, to think about adopting a story, never mind a story that talks about standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, receiving these laws, and committing oneself to, um, to follow these, um, these expectations, even sometimes not knowing what one is signing up for. 
Um, and so I, uh, I share that because it's a difficult thing to teach, but also an exciting thing to learn, to really witness that. And I often share that when you take an introduction to Judaism course, a, a course with the intention of conversion, it's not like taking a math course in that very much these concepts uh, are transformative and change us in, um, in remarkable ways and place on us mishpatim. They place on us expectations in terms of how do we carry ourselves and how do we live out this Brit? How do we live out this, um, this covenant? takes us back to where we began, the notion of covenant. Um, And you mentioned that there were a number of possible covenants that exist in people's lives. Um, What keeps the covenant between the Jewish people and their God so powerful? You've spoken about how individuals can actualize it. But over the course of millennium, the covenant has remained a powerful um, tool, reminder, um, implement, monument. There are so many nouns that could be used here. What, what has enabled it to uh, be everlasting for the Jewish people? Wow. So uh, I, I think my best way to, to um, illustrate that is by thinking about the other covenantal relationship, that being between spouses. Because when we think about a relationship between spouses, it's one of a kind. It's grounded in love. It's um, intended to be um, permanent. It's based on understanding. I would also say that it entails taking a leap of faith meaning we don't know what direction we're going to go. There are going to be highs um, and there are going to be lows. Um, All of those things apply to our relationship with God as well. And that would have been revolutionary to, uh, to bind oneself to a God that one cannot see and to do so with love and with trust and to understand the reciprocity uh, between two. That is how remarkable that bond is. And that's what's entailed with this, um, with this acceptance. I believe I shared earlier that to say na'asebe nishma is to take a leap of faith. It's to say that I am there with you wherever this journey will take us. And that is the beauty of this bond, that we look to God. And as we reflect on this Torah portion, to witness his journey that we go on together. Well, you have made this... Uh, much more powerful a Torah portion spiritually than it appears at first glance. At first glance, it just strikes most readers as a uh, litany of, as I suggested earlier, 53 laws, 23 positive and uh, and 30 prohibitions. And at first glance, it strikes one as a law code that one should stay away from uh, in terms of reading. And one would question whether a law code written uh, two millennia ago still has meaning in our lives. But you've transported that law code uh, into a very spiritual 
understanding of our relationship with the unknown and given it great meaning. I want to thank our guest, Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg of Temple Israel, Ottawa, Canada, for sharing his wisdom with us. The podcast of this morning's Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts can be found on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you good day and shalom. Shalom.